Now, Don, I, I noticed over the break there, whenever I came back from the bathroom, I saw that you were ordering stuff on Etsy already. <laughs> you know, Man, those, I didn't want you to see that. Yeah, I was I just know. trying to... I know, those uh, are some very nice handbags. I the, talked, uh, I talked about it being... handbags. Yeah, I talked about it being kind of feminine, you know, but uh, it's really a lot of pretty items on there, like little pretty things. If we yeah. had Keith here, he definitely would have been ordering a whole bunch of stuff off of that. Yeah, he, he loves that ordering stuff online. You know, that's what Keith's doing today. He's at home doing his Christmas shopping on Etsy right now. <laughs> the Mr. Market Podcast is a production of Sphere Wealth Management. Sphere is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sphere and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal. No advice may be rendered by Sphere unless a client service agreement is in place. See our ADV or get additional information about Sphere. Visit our website, www.sphereWealth.com. Firm information is also available on the SEC's website, www.advisorinfo.sec.gov. Before investing, seek advice from a financial professional, preferably one that acts as a fiduciary and is willing to put that in writing. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or sign up for our email commentary through our website, SphereWealth.com. This is the Mr. Market Podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> do you really believe I, that I have a clue how to do it, how to shop on there? I don't know how to do it, but I'm willing to learn. I think well, it's a pretty got a, cool you thing. you got a grandson that knows how to enter a credit card number into the computer, so you, you can do it. How do, how do small children instinctively know how to do that stuff? Man, I have no idea. Well, you, do, you were the same way. How did you know how to do that stuff? I did not know it well. I did know how to do all that stuff, didn't I? Yeah, you. I mean, you just instinctively knew how to do it. I don't. I didn't teach you how to do it, man. I just realized that in this cavernous room, you shoved me in. I got my bicycles in here. <laughs> it's all. It's uh, the only thing in here is me, a desk, all of our sound equipment, and my two bicycles. Maybe you should explain why you're on one side of the wall and I'm on the other here. Well, we talked about it at the open. I got COVID over Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. That's no fun. Yeah, no, it, it, it hadn't been fun for you. I know you had a high fever, mm-hmm. aches and pains. Um, I'm fortunate, knock on wood, I'm very grateful I have not gotten it. I'm not as worried about it, not as concerned, all the different things. And um, But I respect everybody wherever they are in it, right? And I think we all need to be that way. Just, hey, you know, not, you know, everybody kind of sees it differently. Same way we see a lot of things differently. Right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think... One of the things, this is a great transition, one of the things that we all see differently is when we say the middle class, what are we talking about? Hmm. If I asked you, now obviously I have looked up the economic definition of the middle class. I have put that on a paper. I printed that paper off. It is sitting on your desk. I got it. But before you saw that, what would you have said the middle class was? If I said, hey, Don, tell me about the middle class. Define it. I would say my family because... I always thought that we were kind of in the middle, right? You know, I think everybody thinks that, you know, regardless of where you're at, I think most people kind of consider themselves middle class. And I think there are certain people that don't, right? I mean, I yeah, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg considers himself middle class, nor well, does Tiger Woods. Bill Gates, yeah, right? Warren Buffett. They, they, yeah. they know. Right, nor right. Do I, nor do I think that people in extreme poverty consider themselves middle class either, but right. those people right there around the line. Yeah, what are the numbers? What what what, what are the numbers so to, on it? To define the middle class, this is how you do it. It's two-thirds to two times the median household income. Median household income has to be adjusted for uh, household members, but... Two-thirds to two times. So the median household income currently in this country sits at $68,703 as of September the 15th of 2020. That's the middle. That's the middle. That's That's the median. Dead right in the center. Right. That makes $48,000 to $145,000 in household income 
the middle class. The state of Arkansas, that's a much lower number. Median household income in Arkansas is 47,000. In Benton County, it's 67,000. So in Benton County, it's just shy of the national median household income. But for the state of Arkansas, it's about $20,000 lower. Okay. That's a little bit surprising to me. Right. If the middle class is $48,000 to $145,000 in annual income, upper class, about 19% of people are in the upper class, and that's above 145000 About 29% of people in the country are below 45000 48000 in median household income. Okay. You know, it, it is alarming to, to an extent to think that 29%, especially like in northwest Arkansas, right. which, which is kind of on the lower end, I would think, of the whole country overall. Oh, absolutely. I, it, I 48000 would not be a good income in northwest Arkansas. No, and I think you recognize now that this income disparity that everybody keeps talking about, this is a thing. We do Mm -hmm. have an issue. There is a problem here. Mm -hmm. However, how we solve that problem, there's a massive divide on how we do that. Joe Biden's economic plan, he he dubs it, save the middle class to save America. What do you know about the Biden economic plan, Don? I mean, I do know he wants to give, uh, you know, student loan debt. He wants to forgive mm-hmm. student loan debt, right? And that's a that's a big thing. They, um, but he also the idea of Medicare for all came up a lot in the Democratic mm-hmm. primaries and whatnot. Jo- Joe Biden kept saying during all of that, "I'm not for Medicare for all. I'm not going right. to do that," you know. And so, even though he Many people didn't believe him. Many people began to dispute that and so on. And so it became kind of a deal. But I think by the end, by the time we got deep into the race, there wasn't a lot of talk about that anymore. You know, it kind of all right. all the all that stuff died. However, I do see here that, you know, he does plan to lower the Medicare age. Yeah. Okay. Well, the components of the of Joe Biden's economic plan and how those will impact the middle class, the one that I think is the is the most interesting is that Medicare age to 60. Mm-hmm. Now, it only works if you're able to, if employers and insurance companies of employers, employer-sponsored insurance, is able to force anyone over 60 out of the insurance pool and, and to go get Medicare or to self-pay through the pool to basically be on their own merit in the insurance pool. Because here's what happens whenever you do large employer-sponsored insurance plans. You are, let's say you're a 26-year-old employee, just started, you're making $45,000 a year. Let's say you're making $50,000 a year. There's, a, there's an executive that's 68 years old that's making half a million dollars a year, $500,000 a year, and you're both paying the same amount of insurance. Yet that 68-year-old is the reason why your insurance is $200 a month instead of $100 a month. <laughs> and his $200 a month is not nearly the same as your $200 a month from a percentage of income standpoint, right? So if, so if I have the ability to remove those, those participants in that employer-sponsored insurance, push them out of the plan, force them over to the Medicare option, then all of a sudden the, the employer-sponsored insurance starts to go down significantly. More employers are going to be able to offer it. More employers will probably offer it because it's going to be so much less expensive and more employees will be able to opt in, get the insurance that they need, and then also not be such a burden, such an economic burden on them. So you're talking about helping the middle class force older, more established people out of the employer-sponsored insurance pool. 
because the people that you're going to help are the middle class, are the lower wage workers, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. But you're going to have to tax. I mean, you're going to have to tax those folks. Right. Well, you're paying for it a different way, right? So now what you do is you shift the burden of paying for it away from it's equal to now it's proportional. So now that $500,000 salary, you're paying a greater portion of your salary versus me paying my, my, you know, let's say I'm the 26-year-old, you're the 68-year-old. Mm-hmm. You're going to pay a greater portion of that benefit of that uh, insurance than I am because you have a you're making so much more money than I am, and I think that that's fair from an economic standpoint. That's beneficial because you're putting more money in the pockets of the people in the economy that have the greatest impact in the economy, and that is the middle class. The middle class are the people who are consuming everything. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, um, I mean, Medicare now is in financial trouble. We're not talking about necessarily is Medicare a good option it, it, and is, has, is what are the benefits? Yeah. And it, right. It, it's, hey, if Medicare worked, right side of the aisle, left side of the aisle, they created a Medicare that everybody agreed with. Man, if you give somebody who makes $35,000, $45,000 a year an extra 200 bucks a month, that's a lot of money. Sure. Versus an extra two hundred bucks a month for somebody who makes half a million dollars a year is nothing. But you don't think we're gonna we're gonna tax them in order to be able to pay for this Medicare program? Tax who? But well, the thirty five thousand. We are. You're the tax. The tax is gonna be there. Yeah. But now it's proportional. It's just now a it's smaller. proportional. And and whenever you aspire, whenever you you know you're a twenty six year old employee and you get that extra two hundred bucks a month, all of a sudden that is you being able to go reinvest that 200 bucks a month back into the economy in different ways. That's a lot of money. You know, it is interesting, but most people that are 65 years of age and over, they don't talk about Medicare like it doesn't work. They don't generally talk about it like, oh, that Medicare is terrible. It's terrible. It's awful. It's terrible. You know, they usually kind of think of it like, well, it works. You know, it, it works. And so, so I don't know, maybe bringing it back to 60 would would be beneficial. Now, now one of the no, things you I said at the beginning of this was that the the 60-year-old would have to agree to opt out of the other plan. Well, and I think this is this is the law. So, yes, I think reducing it to 60, I think the actual number is somewhere in the in the high 50s, but I could be wrong, right? Okay. You will you change the law to allow the employer to kick them out of the plan or to make them go on their own merit. So now all of a sudden, when I turn 60, let's say, you go in for your, your annual enrollment and they say, hey, listen, last year your benefits were $200, but now you have the ability to opt out of the plan and go choose the Medicare option, which we have the ability to pay for right through payroll deduction still as long as you want to continue to work here. Or you can continue with your former insurance, but that insurance is now $800 a month, not $200. And, and that person can choose. And yeah. if, if they go, okay, great, I make half a million dollars a year, I'll pay hundred bucks. That's fine. I'll pay hundred dollars a month. Whatever it is, that's fine. But put it back on them. Don't put it on the 26-year-old who just trying to get their career going. Don't double their insurance premiums just so you can keep 5 to 8% of the workforce on some you know, souped-up insurance benefits. And a lot of times that 5 to 8% of the workforce 
is the executives making the decision on what the workplace benefits are going to be and who's going to who's going to be served by those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're disproportionately helping or allowing those executives, those people that have aspired to certain positions in the company, the ability to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. This, this I don't think this is a bad idea. And I kind of see the benefits of doing this, even though I recognize that, hey, I mean, it's, we will probably have to increase taxes because of this. Yeah, there might be, we may increase Medicare tax because of this. Well, it's increasing Medicare tax on an amount of money that I have more of now. I recognize the microeconomic value of a decision like that. Are you, are you, are we good on that one? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here as I'm thinking, I'm thinking about it, contemplating, and I'm, I'm not so sure that I'm against you on this. You know, I'm kind of, the more I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think mine goes back to most people I know that are 65 years of age and over, they don't really sit around every day talking about how, boy, this Medicare is terrible. This is terrible. Right, this is right. the worst thing I've ever. And so I, I've kind of always noticed that, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it must work to a certain degree. You know, it certainly seems to be working better than all the other health care stuff we have going on. Right. right. So if you started thinking about the premiums you pay for insurance as a tax, and I were to say, I know how to lower that tax. You would go, okay, I want to I lower the tax. I want the same benefits, but I want to lower the tax. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. It's a certain, it's a finite number of dollars that are in the system. It's hard to say it's fair for the 68-year-old to piggyback off of the 26-year-old's health while the 68-year-old makes 10 times more than this 26-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. Right. No matter how you slice it, it's never going to be exactly fair. And the idea that we're all just going to pay our own way, that becomes far more expensive than trying to figure out ways to, to put people in groups and do this uh, through employer benefit plans. It really does feel like that, the, you know, the s- smartest people in the room on the Republican and the Democratic side should get together and and um, th- it not be a politically driven conversation. It should be a um, just like we have to do in the best interest of the customer, right? Yeah. Like, is there any way we can get these politicians? You still to- believe in Santa Claus too, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, so the other one I think is interesting, and we'll let's touch on this one real quick, and that's the payback all the student debt. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is a Elizabeth Warren thing, and I think Bernie Sanders adopted this too. There's a lot of momentum for this, and and the one that I think is there's the most momentum is just ten thousand dollars of forgiveness. So they're just going to go in and take $10,000. They're going to uh, excuse the first $10,000 of everybody's student debt, basically. I go to the place of that's completely unfair. Completely unfair. I think that you pick a number and you say, listen, if you graduated college in the last 10 years, we are going to send you a check for $10,000. And if it's 11 years, 9000 12 years, 8000 or however you, you know, scaled it down all the way so that you, you're not giving everybody a check for $10,000, but at the same time, if you went to college, if you graduated with a degree, we're going to send you a check for $10,000, and then obviously it scales down somehow. And this is why you do it that way. Because if, if I am a diligent saver, I went to a college that I could afford, I worked my butt off so that I wouldn't have student debt, and all of my buddies partied it up, did all this other stuff, bought new cars after college while I you know, kept driving the same car that I went to college in so that I could make sure that any student debt that I did have or any debt I did accumulate, I could pay off. Penalizing, or not penalizing, rewarding those that were not as diligent as others seems to be completely unfair. And unless you just send a $10,000 check to everybody, 
I'm going to have a big problem with just a $10,000 loan forgiveness. Just me. I got you. I, I, I get it. I get it. And, and, and I think, you know, Elizabeth Warren, the big thing that happened with Elizabeth Warren really hurt her in the presidential primary was that there was a man that came up to her during one of the uh, one of the big interviews and basically said to her, it's not fair that I have put my daughters through school. I've got three daughters here. And over the last 10, 15 years, I've put them through school and spent X, yeah. you know, millions of dollars or whatever, however much it was. It wasn't millions, but a lot of a lot of money. And now you're going to turn around and like, f- like forgive everybody he goes, are you, how far retroactive are you going to go back to reduce, you know? And so it, it, it really almost kind of opens that proverbial can of worms that how are you going to really quote, quote, fairly distribute this money, which is what you're saying too. You're saying, yeah, this is going to be very difficult to fairly distribute money. That's a very interesting discussion, and it is part of the platform. I think we're going to see it. You're right. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, the the power brokers on the Democratic side of the fence, you know, they're on board. I don't know where the money's going to come from to do that. Where do they think they're just, we're just going to tax Jerome them. Powell. Okay. Did you know he has a button? It's like a Staples <laughs> easy button. That's right. Jerry, what do you do? Well, I'm in the printing business. I'm in the printing business. I print Pretty money. Much just print money. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. That is that is what he does. And I think Jerome Powell sees things in the economy that no one else is paying attention to. Yeah, it could be him and Janet Yellen, right? That'd be a Trish, the dynamic duo. The dynamic duo right there. Dynamic there we go. Duo. Batman and Robin. Yeah. So hey, so talking about the middle class though. One of the places that I thought was going to be interesting, especially if Joe Biden is able to kind of help the middle class and increase the median wage, is in home builders. I think both of us believe that there may be a, a looming recession. Yes. Are you in that camp with me? I, yeah, I think I think it's on the way. I'm seeing lots of lots of stuff from people that I listen to and watch and pay it read and whatever. I'm kind of seeing a lot of that right now. So yeah. Well, I I do see the unemployment numbers. For those that aren't following, we missed new job creation by about 200,000 today. So we were expecting 440,000 new jobs. We created about 240,000 new jobs. Mm. There's nothing healthy about the labor component of this economy. And so I feel like that's going to drive us into a recession. Mm -hmm. If we do fall into recession, I think that that could change some of these opportunities. You know, if we hit to, if we fall into a real hard recession, that could change some of the opportunities that I'm about to lay out. But I like the home builders and I like them for a couple of reasons. One, as we've started to stay home more, we've started to realize that we don't like our house that much or it's not designed for work from home. Mm-hmm. And so we've either been at Lowe's and Home Depot, <laughs> which are the only two places you can go except for Walmart and Target, basically. Right. So you got four <laughs> establishments right. that are open. You go to Lowe's or Home Depot and you go, man, I'm going to change out that light. And the next thing you know, you got a vanity for your bathroom. You bought a new bathtub and you you added a new you know story on your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and imagine all the tools that were bought and all oh, everything man. associated with all that. Yeah. Yeah. And so so I do think that there's going to be a ton of opportunity, continue to be a ton of opportunity in this space, especially as we continue to repurpose the places where we live. Yeah. I'm gonna throw some stats at you and you tell me what you think here. You ready for this? Let me hear it. If I were to if I were to ask you to guess how much commercial space there is number of square feet of commercial space there is in the country, what would you have guessed? Yeah, I don't even have a first clue, but 
it's it's got to be billions of square. I don't know what the number would 87 be. Eighty-seven billion square feet of floor space of commercial floor space. Yeah. Wow. Now there's about two hundred eighty-two billion square feet of residential space. Eighty-seven billion square feet of commercial space. Five point six million commercial buildings across the country. So it's a it's an interesting stat. Here's why. We're not going to need that much commercial space. Right. And we know that. Yeah. Yeah. We can see that for sure. And um, so as some of these, as some of these, you know, investors or some of these companies divest of their commercial space, what does that space get used for? Oh, if it's not going to be residential, like you don't want to just let dead space sit around. Right. Right. Let's say that I own the building that we're currently in and everybody moved out. Well, I'd change it into something. I'd have to generate cash flow from it. I have a, a mortgage, you know, I have a mm-hmm. I have a note. And so I've got to pay the debt service and I've got to pay the note. I've got to generate cash flow. I would either turn it into apartments or I would figure something else out. And I think that we're gonna start figuring out something else for a lot of this commercial space. And I think the the place where we're gonna figure it out is high rise commercial space in urban areas, densely populated urban areas. Hmm. I see those shifting to apartment complexes, apartment buildings, and buildings with, with a home office, maybe two, for the new work-from-home structure. Yeah. You know, you saying that, I, um, I won't say the name of the company, but a company up in Rogers, all right? They're currently, their staff, it's a big company, and they have 25,000 square feet office space, right? 25,000. They have a big building, lots of space, lots of people occupying offices and conference rooms and so on and so forth. And um, so COVID hits, they they mandate, hey, everybody got to work from home. They all go work from home and they all figure out that, wow, we're we're pretty good at this. I mean, we're doing great. We're yeah. doing fine. We don't really need that 25,000 square foot space. And so they have now determined that they are going to have a 2,500 square foot office space, basically two um, assistants that are going to work at that space just so they have someone there. And then they're going to have a couple of conference rooms, make a couple of conference rooms out of this 2,500 square foot space where they could actually meet and have a meeting there. But as far as like all these people having offices there, no, they're just going to work from home. Now, this is a huge blue chip company right um, right here working with the number one retailer in the world, right? Walmart. So there you go. I mean, that and so if, if they're doing that's it, it right. that's what everybody's doing. Right. You just laid it out here in Northwest Arkansas. So I'm looking at the country and I'm going, man, we're about to repurpose a lot of those commercial buildings. But we don't have those same high-rise commercial buildings in Northwest Arkansas. We have some, but we don't have a bunch of that space. What are these people from from the company you're talking about going to go do? Well, they're probably going to take that additional money that they're going to get paid. Because if I'm the company and I say, hey, listen, you've got to have an office at home to work from. It, when it was temporary, it was like, you know what? I can figure it out. I got kids and the kids come in and maybe I can like work the kids out and go stay with the sister-in-law or you know whatever, right? Now I'm going to need a, a full-time work from home office. Or maybe it's a couple and I need two offices in the house. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the I think the number of homes being built with two home offices is going to surprise people. That just it. people are going to be blown away. Like, why do you need two home offices? Well, we lived during COVID, and so <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah, can you imagine, like, fifty years from now, when when the you know these young couples are going through these houses and going, "Why did y'all have like two why you got these home offices everywhere?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, it, you had to have them back in COVID. That's yeah. the way we so, did it. You know. So anyway, so 
that obviously gives opportunity for the home builders. Sure. If I have a space, I have a home, I'm well compensated, but my home no longer suits my lifestyle because my work situation has changed, I move or I build a new home. Or if I I try to move and I can't find exactly what I need, I got to get a home built, right? I think that there's a massive opportunity for Pulte Group, Toll Brothers, and D.R. Horton. And I think D.R. Horton ends up being the biggest winner in this deal. Possibly Pulte. Pulte, from, if, I were, if I were looking at the, at the home builders, from a balance sheet standpoint, from a cash flow generation standpoint today, I would look at Pulte. But if I'm looking at it from a who's going to be the winner of this thing, who's going to be the winner of building these dual office or these new homes for the, you know, the new normal, I think it's D.R. Horton. And if, you, and if you don't know, DR Horton's the largest home builder in the country. They operate in just about every market. They kind of sit right there at that level where they're not custom high-end homes. That's where Toll Brothers is. Toll Brothers sits in that high-end home category. Okay. And so DR Horton's going to be able to roll out some of these uh, some of these planned communities, and these communities are going to include offices and homes. And I think that's that's the next wave. Yeah. And I can't, the number of people that are going to move into these communities out of the communities that they're currently living in because they need this new lifestyle and because they don't have to be close to the office anymore because there's no office. Why not live out near the golf course or out near the lake or out near where I recreate? Yeah. Yeah. And also it feels like the, it it felt like for a long time that we were moving toward uh, everybody coming back to downtown. Right. right. Everybody right. was kind of moving back to right. apartments the, in the downtown area. The and all re-centralization that. of the American population was we were well into it. Downtown was cool again. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm not so sure. I, I'm not so sure. It was, well, it we're was watching the exodus in New York right now. Yeah. I mean, you can pick up an apartment in New York for a 15, 10, 15, 20 percent discount right now. So we're seeing that t- start to play out there. There's probably more than one reason. I don't want to go into all the reasons of that, but you can see that it's happening. And also, well, man, I kind of like the idea of having a place that has a couple of acres out, you know, maybe some horses, dog, whatever, running around, that kind of thing. Man, I'll just, and I'll get my home office out in the country and I'll just work from out there and, you know, so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I, I, I can see the apartments and all that really slowing down, whereas the, you know, homes mm-hmm. all out in the countryside and everywhere continuing to grow. Right, yeah, right. And see and, that happening. And what it does is it puts more strain on the restaurant industry. Yeah. And, and I don't think people are talking about this component of it, is the restaurant industry was coming back in a really unique way because we were getting these really cool kind of foodie restaurants downtown they were able to charge fairly high prices. It was hard to get a table. They stayed busy. Even on weeknights, they were staying busy. Yeah, that's where everybody was. Everybody's going, right? Yeah. Well, because people were living, they wanted to live downtown. They wanted to have more community. They wanted to be yep. more communal in the way they lived. And yep. I don't know that that's going to be the case going forward. Now, we may find that that's exactly how we do it. We just do it in these new communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the individual stocks real quick. Okay. So let's talk about Lowe's and Home Depot first. Because I think Lowe's and Home Depot have the ability to generate 15 to 20% top line sales growth in 2021. I think that's what we may see. Now, obviously, there's some headwinds that could pop up. One would be there's a massive prolonged recession. It's going to be a headwind for everything. If that happens, that's the biggest risk in all of these expectations and all these opportunities. That's going to be the biggest risk. But we're talking about 
buying a home, a, a much larger home out in the country. And you know what the first thing I'm going to do is? I'm going to go to Lowe's and I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff to create a new backyard space. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Or I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff to create a you know garage storage system. A shed. I'm going to go buy a shed, right? With a, with Put a lawnmower in. Right. right. Now, Lowe's and Home Depot are also rapidly growing their pro segment. So their local contractor segment, mm-hmm. the more contractors are starting to use Lowe's and Home Depot versus some of the other older building material sourcing companies because they're just easier to work with. And they've figured this out. They figured out how to kind of be that uh, one size fits all warehouse yet pro service uh, facility. And so you're going to see a lot more of your contractors, your local contractors down at Lowe's. So if I'm building a new house, I may not source all of this stuff from Lowe's. But if I'm building a backyard and I have a contractor who I'm contracting with to build me a new pool or put in a new backyard or put in this or put in that, they may buy a lot of the stuff from Lowe's. And that segment of Lowe's is growing very rapidly. Same thing with Home Depot. I like Home Depot. If I'm picking one of the two, I like Home Depot. Now, Lowe's trades at about 18 times earnings. Home Depot trades at about 23 times earnings. Home Depot does pay a little bit better dividend, you know, about half a percent better, just over 2%. But I like Home Depot, and here's why. This is the simple story of Home Depot. Home Depot just did a better job of getting in the right markets in the right places. They were first to market, and they got in the right markets in the right places. And so that's why I think Home Depot has a better opportunity in 2021 than Lowe's, but just slightly. Hmm. I see both of these being pretty good opportunities. We may even, in a sphere portfolio, these are the two of the stocks that we would even consider buying. Mm-hmm. So both of these stocks screen out in all of our screens. And so these may be really good places to invest. And before I land the plane on invest in Lowe's and Home Depot, understand every investment involves risk. We are professionals at this. Whenever we talk about it on the podcast, we have all of these different parameters that we then go through and an investment committee that votes on it, and then an execution strategy where we go buy it at a certain price. So just because we believe in the business doesn't necessarily mean that we would believe in the business at this price. So if you go invest in that stock and you lose money, understand this is not a recommendation to go buy, sell, or act in any way. So Keith's two favorite words are price matters. Price definitely matters. <laughs> or maybe three favorite words. Price definitely matters. Definitely yeah, that's matters. His, that's his that's his three favorite words. Yeah. So yeah, that's good. Well, let's no, shift. That's, that, that, I mean, that's interesting, and I'm gonna I want to shift with you here, yeah. but that that really is interesting because I can see you can almost kind of see what you're describing there. You can kind of see it coming. You can see. Um, and we're very familiar with these two companies, and these both of these companies, Home Depot and Lowe's. I think they are favored company. You know, they're right, right. they're 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 popular. People like them. They're they've done a good job with customer service. I, you know, obviously there's one-off situations, I guess, but for the most part, I think they're kind of cutting edge. They're they're trying their best, and uh, man, I think I think they're very popular companies, and will probably be around and do great for a long time. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. Yeah, totally agree. Now. If we shift over to the home builders, right, the the Pulte, Toll, and Dr. Horton. Now, there are other home builders out there, if, if you're curious, but these are the three that I decided to pull because these tend to be the biggest and the three that are most commonly talked about. Let's start with Toll Brothers because I think Toll Brothers is a fascinating story. Toll Brothers is focused on high-end homes. So Toll Brothers builds a home that, on average, people spend an additional $180,000 just on add-ons. Jeez. 
Okay. And they do it in these regions of the country where they can go buy land. So they're still in the process of buying land and then they kind of pre-sell the home. It's it's a far more custom experience than like a DR Horton where they're just throwing up homes and you can go in, you go through a model and they say, okay, well, here are the addresses of the 10 homes that look like this model. You don't get to pick your lot. You don't get to pick where you live, right? Mm-hmm. That's a DR Horton does it. I think DR Horton of all of these names is going to have the, the largest increase in top line revenue. Yeah. So that's why if if we continue to see this move, DR Horton's going to win this game. I think going away. Hmm. Okay. So interesting. No, that is interesting. I I mean, obviously, DR Horton is not uh, as familiar as like Home Depot or Lowe's, right? Right. Well, these houses are nice, man. Like these are big, nice neighborhoods with nice houses. They're just the same house over and over and over, and so they they have the ability to create a bunch of them and create them really quickly. I'm thinking somewhere between 77,000 and 80,000 homes in fiscal year 21. Hmm. So that's the reason why top line revenue of 20 to 25% increase would not be a far stretch. And one thing, you know, headwind in their favor at this point, interest rates are low. So yeah. people are, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very popular time to be trying to build a house. Yeah, go get you a mortgage and pay yeah. virtually nothing to borrow the money. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, just to kind of give you an idea, these do trade at much more attractive multiples. So DR Horton trades at 10 times earnings, does pay a 1% dividend, Toll Brothers at 15 times, and Pulte at nine times earnings. I do see all three of those having some opportunity. I think at the end of the day, DR Horton becomes the real winner. Yeah. I got to ask you this, Don. When you got into the business, you did it through insurance, right? Yes. And then you eventually moved over into being an investment advisor. Yes. Right. When that happened, what was like the hottest stock of that time? What was the stock that you that you remember back and you go, oh yeah, man, I remember that one. Like I'm going to remember Apple and I'm going to remember Facebook and I'm going to remember Amazon. Like what, what was the one for you? Well, you know, anything along the lines of technology was big even back then, right? You know, like Cisco, you mm-hmm. know, that was a big one. Back then, I remember a stock called AOL. That was a big oh, one. Oh, yeah. AOL. I mean, that was huge. And then um, I'm trying to think of some of the, Yeah, Keith would probably be better at this than me because he was actually doing a lot of... In, I wasn't doing a lot of individual trading. You know, mine was more retirement planning oriented. It was more, you know, diversified asset allocation modeling and stuff like that. So I wasn't doing a lot of the individual, but, the, but I, I do remember AOL. I remember a company called Research in Motion. I remember that was a big one. Um, yeah, I even the remember, Blackberry. Yeah, that was the old Blackberry. I even remember um, Enron. I remember when Enron was just a huge blue chip company, you know, uh, supposedly. Yeah. And um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was like a very popular stock. It was very well renowned. They were talking about it all the time, you know. So um, I do remember getting um, I had a client that was a but that was a truck driver, and yeah. he called me up one day, and just the greatest guy in the world. And he he called me up. And, he said, hey, my cousin works for this company, and he told me to buy some of this stock. And I said, okay, yeah, what's the name of it? And he said, Apple. And I said, Apple? And I was going, look, I'm going I don't think that's going to be a good one. I'm looking at it. It's $11 a share. And we bought him uh, that stock back in, I guess it was around <laughs> 2000. We bought it for him. He had no idea. It was total speculation just off of it. And I didn't know anything about it either, really, other than just – don't they make computers or something? You know, yeah, I was kind of, yeah. you know, like that. And so, um, but yeah, we bought it for $11 and we sold it at 80 
Well, man, you did great. Oh, yeah, it was great. I mean, I didn't do anything. Yeah, I just, you did great. Although, I think the you know adjusted price on that for splits is probably, what, $8,000 now? He'd be a gazillion, <laughs> a gazillionaire by now, you know, if he, if he would have just held on to it. But I think it, it got to 80, and, you know, he he's asking me, what do you think? And I said, man, if, if I ever had a stock that went from 11 to 80, I'd sell it, you know, right? And so there was a... There's the old speculator it is. speculation going there on. There it is. Yeah, there it is. Well, yeah. you, you, I mean, at that time, you probably didn't realize that they're going to change. Yeah, literally change the world. Yeah, no, yeah, you didn't have any idea. They were, so, they were, uh, they just had that little. What was the name of their computer? Oh, the Macintosh. The Macintosh. That was that yeah. was basically all they had. Little IMAX. Yeah, yeah. There was no iPhone. There was no iPod. There was none of that kind of stuff. You know. Yeah. So well, the iPod came out probably about yeah probably. Probably about that time. Was it about there. that time? Yeah, the, I, I had an iPod when I was in maybe, high school. I maybe believe. that's what caused it to go from eleven dollars to eighty dollars. Yeah, know, I may were, have been in college, but it was right there, yeah. college, high school. But I definitely because the iPhone came out the end of my in, end of college for me. So yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Well, no, that was a big one though. Hey, the one that the one that will be for me probably the one that I will probably never forget is Nvidia. Right. Okay. <laughs> because we got on Nvidia so early. Yeah. You know, this is kind of right whenever we started creating these investment, um, these individual stock portfolios. Mm-hmm. So we buy NVIDIA and man, don't you know what that thing like quadruples? What'd you buy that? Mm, I don't know, like 45 maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's like $500 now. Yeah. Well, we sold it when it got to like 250 maybe. Yeah. And yeah. so we made a killing on it and it just, you know, it kept going. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. And we definitely saw some headwinds for NVIDIA. It actually fell. So it climbed up to about 200, 250. I can't remember exactly. Fell back down in the low hundreds. And and then we had an intern. I don't know if you remember this. We had an intern. I, I was just fixing to say this. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> so, we had, so uh, and this is, you know, one of the smartest interns we've ever had. Yep. And man, I hope he listens to this podcast. I'm probably going to send him this one and tell him we talked about him. His name's Will. And Will came in and he just kept telling us, he kept pounding the table. He's like, you guys have to buy NVIDIA. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And I kept going, Will, we already sold it, man. Like, there's no way that I think NVIDIA can do all the things that they think they're going to be able to do. And people will continue to trade the stock up at the same rate. So we decided to exit. Well, it's <laughs> gone about, it's up about five times since then. <laughs> I know, I know. And Arista, Arista did about the same thing. So we made a lot of money on Arista and a lot of money on NVIDIA for clients. And so anyway, I'll never forget that one. But it, it's come back up here and one that I won't ever forget. And I don't think Keith will ever forget this one. And that one's Qualcomm. Yeah. Qualcomm. And so let's talk about the move to 5G before we wrap this up. Because I think there's some opportunity here. And if you don't know about the move to 5G, there's a component of Joe Biden's economic plan that includes internet to rural areas. And one of the ways that we could get internet to rural areas is by offering cell towers in some of these areas where we wouldn't have to necessarily drill these really expensive legacy assets through the ground, right? So if we put a bunch of fiber optic cable in the ground, and we have to drill through 200 yards of sheer granite to get to somebody's house on the middle on the top of a mountain that's a $200,000 investment when we're asking to we're asking somebody to pay 35 bucks a month yeah you know from a cost standpoint from a investment standpoint it's never worth it to do that but if we're able to do it through the air 
5G has the speed necessary and the bandwidth necessary to do a lot of the things that we're currently doing just with Wi-Fi, just just the, the upload-download speeds that we have available in Wi-Fi. So if we have this move to 5G, we may not need all of these legacy wires running around through the ground. We may just have internet. It just exists. It just is in the air. The internet just is. That'd be really amazing. Yeah. Be like um, internet and air. It's all free. <laughs> Although I'm pretty sure they'd charge for internet. They'd probably figure out how to charge for air at some point too. Well, yeah, we're, we're trying to charge with this climate change stuff conversation we got going on all the time. We're going charge to eventually for air, charge for air. Yeah. Water. That's right. That's right. Dirt. Trying to pre- we already charge for dirt. Preserve Dirt's the, very expensive. It is, yeah. You get a you get a truckload of dirt, it'll cost you right there. Yeah, um, it'll cost you your back is what it'll cost it'll, you. So. <laughs> it'll cost your back, not mine. Yeah, so, Stephen's back. Stephen's back, yeah. that's right. <laughs> so, uh, so Just anyway. ask him, yeah. <laughs> the move to 5G includes what I think are, are six potential winners and losers in this thing. You have the providers, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint. You have the guts of this. Qualcomm, Analog Devices, and American Tower. And I think those six stocks make up the opportunity in 5G. Now, Qualcomm's trading much, much higher right now. A lot of that's the settlement with Apple. They've recently settled with with Huawei. But there's still a lot of opportunity there. It's still only trading at 20 times earnings. The dividend's Mm -hmm. 1.8%. And it has a lot of, of potential upside, especially as we move to 5G, because they are the ones making the best chip. Everybody recognizes that Qualcomm is making the best chip for 5G. Yeah. American Tower is a REIT, and they lease tower space to AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. Now, American Tower's biggest upside is internationally. And I want to talk about international opportunities and the way international markets have trailed domestic markets here over the last, golly, 10, 12, 15 years even in, in a podcast soon. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation and one that's really interesting from a government standpoint, from a policy standpoint. Yeah. But I want to go back to American Tower, a lot of a lot of opportunity internationally. Analog devices, they are also a chip maker. So they do a lot of the same things. They take analog signals, create them to digital signals. Um, and so those three companies do have opportunities there. I think Qualcomm probably has the most opportunity. I think American Tower pays about a 2% dividend and Analog Devices pays about a 2% dividend. Both of those trade between 24 and 28 times earnings. So all of those right there in line with about what the market average is right now in terms of multiples. Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T. Verizon and AT&T, obviously the stalwarts of this thing, Right. T-Mobile Sprint, the merger has occurred, and those that, that company is coming on fast. They are chewing up market share at an alarming rate. T-Mobile is my biggest opportunity in that space, although it is currently trading at 55 times earnings. What about yeah. you, Don? You got any you got any comments on this? I, I, I don't, other than I know you like that when you've been talking about the T-Mobile and the opportunity. I know, you know, when I look at AT&T, um, and I'm seeing that you kind of like that when you think that has some opportunity. I, that That's, I mean, AT&T has been around forever. Mm-hmm. And the only reason anybody would ever buy AT&T back in the day was... Um, 
that they had a great dividend. You know, they always yeah. they always had a really good dividend. Well, they're, they're still paying about seven percent, so it's a heck of a lot more than you can get in just about anything else right now. Yeah, so they seem to, and then so um, so that's an interesting one from the standpoint that you kind of like it from overall what mm-hmm. you see happening. That that might be one of those that typically a person might go, eh, that's an old stodgy company. I don't know that I'd want to be in that one. You know, but with that, with the 5G coming on, you can see that, whoa, 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 wait a minute. They may be sitting in the exact right spot right, right. now. So, yeah. And, and if you think about utilizing 5G and the the additional revenue component that would be available to AT&T, obviously AT&T does have, you know, kind of internet to home. Well, they do internet on your phone as well. And so if they shift from just internet at home to in, now it's just all on your phone, will they be able to to increase the fee to to the consumer or is there some synergies involved in kind of removing some of those legacy employees synergies are just if i have a um, director of finance in one company and a director of finance in another and i don't need two directors of finance i just need one right so i can let one go and i save myself you know half a million dollars in in payroll now the legacy assets in the ground and at t has a ton of debt around those but those legacy assets in the ground that is a cause for concern that's a big concern. Sure. The other concerns for AT&T are they still own DirecTV and everybody's still cutting cords. So AT&T and DirecTV merged. Everybody's still cutting cords. You're seeing that space shrink, not expand. They're basically just winding all that stuff down right now. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these stocks, especially a lot of these technology stocks, the price has been just going straight up. And, you know, you're terrified to go buy it right now because, wow, this is, uh, price is at all-time high. That's exactly the opposite for AT&T. Yeah. You know, over the last five years, it's actually been going down, and it's still down. You know, basically you're sitting here at 30 bucks a share. Um, that's low. That's low for AT&T. And so there, yeah. hence you got the 7, 7% dividend coming out. So their dividend's still holding up strong, but the price is really down pretty low right now. So so that is an interesting one, you know, like, I mean, one to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, for sure. I think T-Mobile is going to continue to chew up market share. I'm interested to see if AT&T and Verizon can expand that space anymore. I don't know that they can. I think that we're about saturated in terms of cell providers. Am I going to buy two cell phones? Probably not. There are only so many people. There are only going to be so many handsets in people's hands, right? There's only so many phones that are going to be bought because there are only so many people, and I don't need more than one phone. How do they find ways to increase revenue? They're chopping up pieces of their business and selling it off to different people left and right, trying to pay some of that debt down, trying to get themselves in a better balance sheet position. Um, Stanky's going to be a little bit more of a tactician, and you like that for AT&T going forward. Hard to be a visionary with a 8,000-year-old company with legacy assets from you know World War One still buried in the ground. <laughs> Um, Eight thousand year old company. That's a good one. It's not far off, man. <laughs> so T-Mobile is probably going to increase top line sales by about fifty percent in twenty twenty, and and maybe another twenty five to thirty percent in twenty twenty one. T-Mobile is tearing the cover off the ball right now. Yeah, people will continue to move to T-Mobile, and a lot of people are moving over to the prepaid plans. You know, it's people that don't have access to credit or don't have the ability to do the postpaid plans. They're moving over to those prepaid plans, and AT&T and Verizon are now offering those, and they're, they're doing very well in that space. So that shift to 5G, as we go there, those are the players, and that's who I think is going to win in the long run. I think T-Mobile, from a business standpoint, wins in the long run. I think 
I think it might be hard to beat AT&T as a stock. At nine times earnings with a 7% dividend, I think that they have the ability to operate with an efficiency and to continue to scale their businesses in a way that they'll be the winner in the long run. The stock will, the stockholders, uh, shareholders of AT&T will end up being the winner if you're, if you're buying stocks today. This good individual stock discussion today on the podcast feels like you're kind of getting a glimpse of making the sausage here. You know, you're kind of getting a glimpse of what it looks like. Yeah, it's better with Keith. You right, know, it's always, right. It's always better when Keith's We add the color. Keith adds the color and the knowledge of mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. You know, we certainly miss miss having him today. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Don, as we wrap this up, let's let everybody know that we do have a Facebook group. It's called the Mr. Market Podcast, and we hope that you'll join the group. We're going to engage in discussions about podcasts after the episodes are released. And you can ask any question you want. You can ask it about things that were in the episode. You can ask about random things. Uh, we hope you'll join the group, the Mr. Market Podcast group. And then we have a website, spherewealth.com. Anything else that you want to say about opportunities for 2021 as of now? I've been, I've enjoyed this. My opportunities, my hope would just be that the we get a little bit, a little bit more activity with the vaccine. We get that distributed. We get that done, and people can kind of begin to go back to normal. I'm ready for some normalcy. Is this not normal? We're well, sitting on two sides of the wall. I'm, yeah, I'm looking not, at a, yeah. What people don't know is I've taped. I've got like masking tape. I've <laughs> taped all of these foam panels all over this room. You, I sound like I'm in a like I'm in a, a Al Qaeda cave in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, COVID has finally come to us, right? We finally have, uh, we're doing have it. experienced it, but we're kind of plowing through it and getting it done. But yeah, this is a great example of just getting back to some level of normal normalcy. Boy, I, I sure hope that's what happens in 2021. Same here. Same here. Yep, so, yep. All right. Well, hey, we'll be back next week. Hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.